And sometimes going on food stamps is the same as applying and doing your FAFSA to get your Pell Grant to help you get to your degree. I know many of us said, well, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps, but what if you don't have boots? I wanted students to tell me what was keeping them from getting the grades. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. This session about addressing students' basic needs was recorded at our annual Congress in New York. The panel features Russell Lowry Hart, president of Amarillo College, Joe May, chancellor of the Dallas Community College District, William Serrata, president of El Paso Community College, and Sarah Golger-Grab from Temple University moderating. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming out on a Friday afternoon. Um, I know this has been a really busy conference, and I'm grateful for your time. I'm especially grateful that I'm joined here um, by three leaders from the state of Texas. I was approached by ACCT to think about putting together a panel of discussing issues of students' basic needs and how they're being addressed. And I thought, well, there's a lot of variation around the country and things going on. I thought it may be really interesting to zoom in on one state but look at some of the variation as well as some of the similarities between things that the institutions are undertaking. So I have with me here today, I have Chancellor Joe May from the Dallas Community College District. I have Bill Serrata, he's the president at El Paso Community College, which if you have not been there, you need to go. You need to go to a borderland right now and see what it's like to get your education in a borderland. It's really something. And then we have President Russell Lowry Hart from Amarillo College in the panhandle of Texas, a place that I had never been to as of two years ago, but now can't stop going to. And I'll tell you a little bit about why. So um, I've asked the three of them here to have a conversation uh, with you, with me, about the work that they're doing to try to make sure that we recognize as colleges that fundamentally students are humans first. And to try to meet them where they are so that they can actually engage in our classrooms and with our faculty. Before I turn it over to them, I wanted to do a little bit of stage setting to remind you of some of the big national statistics that we now know about this landscape of basic needs and security. Um, when I used to visit ACCT 10 years ago, this really wasn't much of a conversation. You know, we were talking about other things, talking about remediation, uh, talking about the Pell Grant and how it hasn't gotten bigger lately, or not significantly bigger. And we were, of course, lamenting issues of underfunding of colleges. But the conversation has shifted, and now we have multiple sessions at this conference on basic needs. And we know that that's necessary because thanks to ACCT, we have now been able to do surveys at the colleges and learn that approximately one half of community college students are experiencing food insecurity and or housing insecurity. And we also know that between 12 to 14% of the nation's community college students have experienced homelessness in the last year. Those numbers originally felt very preliminary and new because we could only get maybe 10 colleges around the country to do the surveys, but we've been doing these surveys now for quite a while. And I was saying to a colleague this morning, it amazes me that I could pull all the data from the community colleges and put it all essentially in a hat and pull out any college and look at the rates of food and housing insecurity and they pretty much all look the same. And that's true no matter how big or small the college is, no matter how many students answered the survey, no matter the budget of the institution, 
no matter where in the country the institution's located, no matter how many Pell Grant recipients they have, the one thing that does seem to drive the numbers a little bit is the unemployment rate in the area. So where we do see higher rates of unemployment, we see a bit more homelessness among our students. And that does make sense because one of the leading causes of homelessness in this country is joblessness. You know, if you can't find work, it really is hard to pay rent. Over time, we've started to move beyond the numbers. And so this conversation today is about action. And I want to make sure that you all know that you're invited to be part of that action. My team at the Hope Center for College Community and Justice have instigated a movement we call Real College. It's a hashtag Real College because so much of the conversations on social media. We call it Real College because we really want people to understand that it's not all about Harvard anymore. Okay? We need to be talking about the community colleges and their partners at comprehensive, broad access, public institutions, because that's where regular Americans go to college. And it's at these real college institutions that people are really turning towards the students and really rejecting the idea that if you don't have your basic needs met, you don't belong in college. We're seeing a range of actions. They're, they range, frankly, from Band-Aids. Band-Aids are things like food pantries. Nobody ever solved hunger with a food pantry, but food pantries are necessary because when students in an emergency situation, you do need to have a place to send them so they can at least get some food quickly. Another Band-Aid is what I've been uh, talking about the last couple days, something called safe parking. How many, any of you have safe parking on your campus? Safe parking is a place for people who sleep in their cars to park overnight that's protected by security so that they can sleep comfortably without being afraid that someone would knock on their window or do them some harm. I know I have a president here in the audience from uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College. I spent more than 10 years doing research um, at that institution in that community, and it was one of the first places that I ever visited where a 29-year-old college student who was trying to get a technical degree told me the trouble he'd had the night before because he was sleeping in his truck. And he used to park his truck in his old neighborhood because he felt like he knew that place. He grew up there, and he thought he'd be safe. But the night before, he'd been woken up by a guy who shoved a pistol through the window, which he'd left rolled down so he'd have some air. And he was stressed out. He was traumatized. He was in tears. Right? So the idea that we need to now provide a safe place for our homeless students to sleep and we can't yet afford to give them real shelter or housing, but we open up our parking lots, that's unfortunately, it's still a Band-Aid. The other side of the coin are preventative efforts, things that we can do to actually keep students from ever dealing with these problems. And those range from, if you can, dramatically increasing the financial aid available to your students, which is a hard one to do, uh, to things like food scholarships, which are given out to students whether or not they're food insecure yet, so their groceries are covered, to changes in how we administer public benefits so that students have those supports from the start of college, again, so that they don't become hungry or homeless. Colleges are at various stages of this work, and it's difficult work, and it's evolving work, and the kind of work that they need to do depends in many ways on the scale of their institution, the resources at hand, the community's willingness to work with them, and their entrepreneurialism as well. 
And so what you're going to hear today are the different types of work being undertaken in Dallas and El Paso and Amarillo. I know, frankly, the work in Amarillo the best because my team has spent the last year studying the work that Russell and his team has done. And on our website at Hope for College, you can find a detailed case study of the work that they've put together. Um, I've also, though, had the privilege of visiting El Paso Community College in the last year and seeing some of their work, and I have several new efforts going on in Dallas, so I'm really excited to be giving Joe an opportunity to be sharing that with you. And so I think that's where we'll start, okay, with Chancellor May and let him uh, tell you about what's happening in his community. Well, good afternoon, and, and Sarah, thanks uh, so much for uh, uh, allowing all three of us to, to I think, share what's uh, an important work uh, that uh, is not only important but absolutely essential as we're looking at meeting uh, today, uh, today's students. Uh, let me start, if, if I could, with this, uh, looking uh, about uh, in 2014. Uh, we have one of our trustees here. She'll remember when we uh, had a board uh, planning session uh, that year. Uh, we laid out uh, for the board what was happening in our community and pointed out that on one hand, we had a booming community with cranes blocking the sky uh, on one, in one area and the third fastest growing poverty rate in another area. How could we be creating 335 new jobs a day at the same time seeing poverty rise at unprecedented rates? In fact, since 1999 in Dallas, median family income has declined by 16%. So the, uh, while we're seeing growth of wealth, we're not seeing everyone participate in the, those opportunities that are out there. So we coined a phrase because we, 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 we thought the language wasn't right for what we uh, needed to do, and we began to refer to the people that we weren't bringing in our doors and needed support as non-consumers of higher education because they weren't buying what we were selling, and they didn't see hope and opportunity through what, uh, what we had available uh, for, for a, a number of reasons. So we began to look at what, what, in fact, were the barriers for our students. We started with a couple of things. Of course, we participated in the ACCT-sponsored uh, Hope Center survey, uh, and, and again, very similar results, 11% uh, uh, indicating homelessness. We had a, a, a high percent uh, that were food insecure other needs that, that, were, that were there. But we did something else. Uh, we, we decided we needed an in-depth student experience study. So we put out a call to our employees, said who would like to be trained as researchers uh, and to shadow students uh, for six months. And 300 people volunteered, of which we selected 40. Uh, and and I, I talked to those folks, they said, look, said we volunteered because uh, we, we won't stay with it unless we know what we find will actually be resolved and addressed in, in a way. And, and so we began uh, looking at this, and, and what we found, uh, I guess in one way, shouldn't be surprising. In other ways, uh, it, it was, wow, we can't uh, let this go unaddressed with, within our students. And let me, let me just, just a couple of things. We... We also realized at that time we were creating something we call the Dallas Promise Network. I'll talk about that tomorrow in a, in a session. But what that network does is, is focus on transition points, not on the, the entity itself, 
but uh, the, the recognition that most failures, whether it be from eighth grade to ninth grade, transition. Ninth grade and uh, uh, or 12th grade of, of college into, uh, or high school into college, that transition point. So we be realized that there were others that were out there. For example, public transportation. Now, it, it was available, but folks they didn't, uh, didn't grasp it because we didn't manage the transition. So our board agreed uh, to provide 100% of our students, that's up to 123,000 a year, public transportation passes uh, in order that they could take advantage. Because as we looked at it, about 70% of our students did not have reliable transportation. So we knew that that had to be uh, met. Uh, we, uh, we then began to look closely at, at who we were bringing in our doors because we were successful in bringing non-consumers in. We began to reach much deeper. I think you talk about your average age dropped two years, so did ours uh, and, uh, and, and in that process. As we were uh, more successful, we uh, went deeper, we partnered with high schools and realized that 82% of the high schools that we were working with right now, uh, the students were on free and reduced lunch. It didn't change. Uh, when, when, they, uh, when, when they came through our doors. And once again, we didn't invent the food pantry. We found a partner, uh, the North Texas Food Bank, that uh, we now partner with. We have a pantry at every, all seven colleges. Uh, we uh, co-brand a mobile pantry uh, that, uh, that we support that brings fresh produce and other goods uh, on, a, on a regular schedule to the, uh, uh, to, to the campuses so that our folks can take care of it. We also saw something else start to happen. We uh, incidences of, of behavioral health problems and being misinterpreted. Uh, uh, we would have people arrested on campus when what it, the, the real issue was not a behavior problem, it was a mental health issue. So we began to work. Uh, we now uh, brought in and train, uh, training our people in emergency uh, uh, mental health aid and uh, first aid uh, uh, to, to address those needs. But we've also now partnered with the University of Texas Health Science Center on a project where we're doing 18,000 students a year screened for mental health, and then they're supporting the, uh, the, the treatment going forward So as we, as we roll that out. And then working with you on a, a project uh, uh, related to emergency aid. Uh, so that as the car breaks down, uh, you know, what we found is our procedures weren't designed for people with needs. Uh, the, we, we have money. We, we have the resources to help fix the, uh, the, the car, uh, we, uh, to, uh, to, to deal with the electricity being cut off. But what we can't, don't have is a, is a good way of getting the resources uh, it, to them. It takes a week to cut a check. Well, by a week, they've already missed classes and, and, and are uh, turned away. So we, we go back. Our, our goal is to partner with entities that are out there but bridge that connection. And, and one I want to mention because I, I think there's only three institutions in the country using this, and they would love to have more join. There's, a, there's an Austin company called Aunt Bertha. Talked about Aunt Bertha. Any of you heard of it? I wouldn't think so. It's a funny name. You won't forget it, right? Uh, <laughs> Well, Aunt Bertha, uh, we partnered with them. What they do is they connect individuals uh, that have needs to resources to address those needs, and they do it through a website. They come in, and, and uh, the, the CEO was trying to help an aunt 
his aunt Bertha, uh, with uh, get get help and realize that there was no single place to go to draw the resources. So he's created a network that's accessible uh, by the web, so that our students can put in like if they need housing, which is the number one requested item on there, or or food, or health services, are there an abusive relationship, or uh, want to report an assault, or whatever it is, uh, they can put that in there, and they will then be directed at free and no cost opportunities to to have those needs addressed within the uh, uh, the community. And we white label it, and uh, we put it on, into our web page. But again. And it's, it's looking at, and, and but what's even better than the service itself is it shows you on a daily, monthly basis. I read every monthly report that comes out of what students are searching for and what type of assistance they're needing. So we package this together in a way combined with some other resources that we call the Dallas Promise Network. And we want to emphasize network because it's the opposite of going it alone. Uh, and we believe that trying to do it all, trying to uh, be autonomous in our efforts is, uh, is, will not serve students. And the other is to emphasize this is not about the institution. This is really putting the student in the center and making everything we do student-centric. Thank you. So, Bill, you're up next. Sure. Uh, what a pleasure for me to be here with you today. Can't thank Sarah enough. We, we, uh, joke that we're the pips. Uh, Sarah is, is Gladys Knight, and so it really is, it really is her work that is, is driving this, and we can't thank her enough for bringing light to this issue that many of us didn't realize. You're the best-looking pip, I have to say. <laughs> that, that many of us didn't realize was occurring on our respective campuses. Um, I see a lot of presidents in the room. I see a couple of trustees, many trustees, a couple from my institution who I'm privileged to work for. So let me tell you a little bit about our, our particular community college, how we, um, how we got to work with uh, Dr. Goldrick Robb and what we're doing now. I'd say we're at a Band-Aid stage at this point, um, but we are moving forward. And I'd also say um, I was a little nervous to bring in Dr. Goldrick Robb just based on the passion, and I was afraid I was going to be scolded that we weren't doing enough. That is not what her and her team do. So let me just make that really clear. They come in, and unfortunately, uh, Dr. Lowry Hart and I, we've discussed this issue, and it almost always, every discussion almost always is over a meal, which feels a little ironic as well. <laughs> we we confess to Dr. Goldergrob that we did that as well. El Paso County, far west Texas, further west than El Paso, only metropolitan area in the state of Texas that is in mountain time zone. We serve, eight, uh, our county has about 840,000 people, about 82% Hispanic. Unemployment has come all the way down to about 4.1%. When we started this work, it was closer to 10%. Um, and then we, we outperform the state in, in metrics we don't want to outperform the state. 22.5% uh, of our population lives below the poverty line. The state of Texas, which outperforms the nation, I'm a very proud Texan, I think we all are, but we outperform the nation and we're at about 17% in the state of Texas. We earn, on, we earn on average 76 cents for every dollar that's earned in the United States and 77 cents for every dollar that's earned in Texas. Those are both up about a nickel uh, from five years ago, and yet we know there's so much more work to do. We all know the trustees in the room, the presidents in the room, the more you learn, the more you earn, and the less likely you are to be unemployed. But how do you learn when you're hungry? And these were the kinds of things, so very similar. Um, Region 19 is where our, the, our 12 school districts are located. 74% of all Region 19 students are on free and reduced lunch. 
They graduate from high school and there is no free and reduced lunch at the institution. Now, 87% of our first time in college students are on some type of financial aid, of which 97% is either Pell or scholarship. And yet what happens is they're distributed that, that amount right after census date. Their tuition and fees are covered right 10 days before the semester begins. That's the federal law. Um, so they get their tuition and fees covered, they get a portion for their books, and then once they have been at the institution and they get past census date, they're awarded the rest of their financial aid. And so as most students, I remember I was on scholarship as an undergraduate, most of the time you live well when you first get that scholarship check, when you first get that aid check, and then those resources run out. And then what? And so again, what we did is we started to explore, we formed a committee. Um, one of our board members who was not able to make it to this particular meeting, Mr. John Uxer, this is his pet. This is something he really believes in, all of our board do, but this is something that he has been the point person on when Dr. Goldrick Robb, by the way, UTEP, University of Texas at El Paso reached out to her. And she said, I'll come to El Paso, but only if I get to go to El Paso Community College as well. And so I can't thank her enough for that. And of course, UTEP reached out and said, well, if you share in the cost, she'll be willing to come visit you. <laughs> and I said, absolutely, we'll share in the cost. We would love to host her. We would love to have her. Um, and we, we brought out faculty, staff, students. We brought out board members to listen to her and to help her frame the subject. Um, I want to emphasize that, that it's very difficult for students, in particular in the Latino community. There's so much pride that's involved in here. It is not asking for help. It is utilizing resources that are available to these students that they should have. Uh, again, this is a way, a means to an end for us to be able to get them into the system of higher education and then get them through successfully. What we're finding is many of our students, when they leave us, they're not leaving us because their grades are the issue. They are leaving us because they have a family issue, they have a social issue, they haven't eaten. These are the, the kinds of issues that they're dealing with. And so what we're working on, as I said, a Band-Aid uh, band types of solution now until we can institutionalize this. We have five full campuses in the greater El Paso area. We, are, uh, we have food pantries at two of those. The, we started with the largest campus. The Valle campus is about 17,000 of our 29,000 students. And so that's where we started. We got student government incredibly involved. And student, student government has played a pivotal role and a leadership role in this. So we do this. The clubs and organizations now host competitions on who can raise the most uh, donations with regards to canned goods. And we highlight them. And now I'm going out to local business leaders. We have some pretty, well, Paso's a, a high poverty area, but we also have a lot of wealth. And so some of that wealth are folks that own restaurants, uh, that own chains of restaurants. And so we're going and asking them to, develop, to provide to us vouchers so that if a student comes to us, um, that we can just provide that voucher. You don't have to prove that you're hungry. If they come to us and they're coming and saying, I'm hungry, we can provide a voucher to McDonald's. We can provide a voucher to Peter Piper Pizza. Um, big owners in our community from, from franchises throughout the state, reaching out to them, working with uh, all of the different philanthropy organizations, partnering with the El Paso Food Bank to do the same kinds of things and move that forward. We are in the midst. We just completed the survey, so I can't thank... Uh, Dr. Goldrick Robb and her, uh, her team enough for allowing us to go forward and completing that survey. The results will come to us in the spring, but we're already moving forward with actionable items to ensure that we're addressing this. Once we find out more, we will develop more. 
Uh, and she's also kind to say, you don't have to solve it all at one time. You start with one you can control. So we're starting with the food banks. From there, we're dealing with the partnerships within our community. Then we're learning. I'm a believer in the case method. I copy and steal everything. And I give credit. So I'm learning from Chancellor May. I'm learning from Dr. Lowry Hart. And we're taking what they're doing in their particular communities. And we're expanding that into our community so that we make sure that we utilize all of the different uh, tools and accessories that are available so that we get our students what they need. Again, it's very difficult for them. And I know what many of us in the room are thinking. Well, and I'll tell you my own. My first year, I did my undergrad at, at A&M College Station. Back then, it was just A&M. There wasn't more than one A&M. And when I went to A&M, I realized about uh, two months in that my, my family and I, my parents and I, hadn't budgeted for food. I lost 17 pounds my first semester in college, uh, and not because I wanted to. Um, but it was one of these pieces, so it's an issue. I know many of us said, well, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps, but what if you don't have boots? And so we're dealing with students that have so many issues and still realize that the pathway to the middle class is through our doors. We have an obligation to facilitate that pathway. And if you ha don't have your basic needs met, how can we get them there? I just want to take a second to remind you that registration is now open for the National Legislative Summit. The summit will take place in Washington, D.C. from February 10th through the 13th and is a great opportunity to advocate for your institution and hear from members of U.S. Congress, leading political analysts, and other high-profile speakers about the current climate in D.C., recent elections, and legislative issues impacting community colleges. Head over to nls.acct.org to register. Okay, we're gonna move to Russell, but first, hey, I wanna say thank you for bringing in the personal behind this, because that's actually a really big part of the work. I have a colleague in California, Ruben Canedo, who is really teaching me a lot about this work, and one thing he always says at the start of these sessions is that you have to remember, as we've been increasing the number of first-generation leaders among us, you know, and folks who didn't come from wealth, who are leading our institutions, that they may very well have a very personal connection to these issues. And while that gives them strength, it's also traumatizing, frankly, uh, to relive it, to go through it, and to watch other people still going through it. I think one of the most powerful things I heard a president say to me recently is, I'm having trouble dealing with this because I can't believe I still have to deal with this. Right? I went through this in college. I thought we'd really gotten past this. And it's still going on. And that's such a drag. So thank you, Bill. And on to Russell. I think one of the reasons I'm uh, as passionate about this as I am is I listen to my students every day. I seek out conversations with them, both intentionally um, and by the luck of whomever is walking in with me from their car. Um, when, when I came to Emerald College and I saw our success rates, um, I was embarrassed of them. But as a recovering faculty member and a true academic, I thought, we had to build more academic solutions to the problems that our students were facing in the classroom. So as a true academic, I wanted to do research and I investigated uh, through a series of focus groups and surveys the biggest barriers to student success in the classroom. I wanted students to tell me what was keeping them from getting the grades, the learning, to being successful in the classroom. And I frankly was expecting 
that we needed more tutoring, which we do, that we needed more active learning and better pedagogy and better uh, educational resources, all true. But the top 10 things that our students identified that were keeping them from being successful in the classroom had nothing to do with the classroom. Childcare, healthcare, transportation, food, housing, utility payments, um, uh, even legal services because we, we penalize poverty in this country. It costs a lot to be poor in our country. So when that, kept, when that came in our research and then it kept being reaffirmed and reaffirmed and then we partnered with Sarah in the Hope Lab survey that even though I knew what I thought the results was gonna be, coming in and learning that 59% of my students out of the 10,000 are housing insecure and 54% are food insecure and 11% are homeless. That means over 1,000 students in my institution are homeless. That was more than I could bear. It was heartbreaking because we're being held accountable for student success, rightly so. We have a robust, profound student success agenda that has taken hold in the community college sector but we're ignoring one of the biggest reasons that students don't taste the success. And that is the life barriers of poverty. So at Amarillo College, once we knew that was an issue, uh, we started asking students to tell us what the perfect college looked like. What did it feel like? Um, and our students actually wrote our values that are all centered around issues of caring. So at Amarillo College, we have the AC culture of caring that we have completely reimagined our college to structurally build caring into every aspect of what we do and who we are. So in, a, in, in addressing the specific barriers that students face, we have created a robust system. I've hired, I think we have four social workers now. I have social workers from the university in our community that are, we're a field placement site, there are case managers. The reason you wanna do that is because the social work accrediting body will not allow a student to be paid while they're doing their uh, field work and getting their certification. So it's not something that costs us a lot of money, but the impact has been incredible. So we have food pantries on all campuses. We have clothing closets on all campuses. But the issue is, once you're meeting those basic needs, our goal is to move students out of poverty, and the best way to do that is with a degree, and those life barriers are keeping them from a degree. So our culture of caring is built on three main tenets. It is uh, building a complete social service system that allows us to connect our students to resources that go unused in our community every year. It's using predictive analytics to connect those students to resources before they're in a crisis rather than responding to a crisis. And it's providing our student, which I call Maria, the typical student at Amarillo College, it's giving Maria um, an opportunity to get in and out in an accelerated fashion uh, because we know the longer it takes Maria to get a degree, the less likely she is to finish it because at some point she's gonna face a tough choice. Do I quit and take care of my 1.2 kids and get a third job? Because at Amarillo College, our students are on average working two part-time jobs with 1.2 kids and going to school full-time. 
She's faced with a decision, and she's always going to choose her family and surviving today. We had to reinvent and restructure our college so that Maria didn't have to sacrifice her tomorrow to survive the day. So in addition to the social workers that work on food and housing and um, utility payments and, and a robust emergency aid system where we're on par to give away almost $100,000 this year alone in emergency aid, uh, and it is connecting our students within a nonprofit sector that is disconnected in almost every community in this country. If you talk to your nonprofits in your community, none of them have eradicating poverty in their mission. They're all trying to solve a specific need, but none of them are about holistically looking at the people in which they're serving. We at Amarillo College are becoming the glue that's bringing all of those social services together in a way that we can leverage so that a student can meet an immediate need that would keep them out of the classroom, keep them in the classroom, keep them on the pathway, and get them graduated and into a living wage. One of the biggest elements to helping us do that uh, is we have our social services on our campus at least once a semester. I feed them lunch or breakfast, and we just talk about who's doing what, because with so many grants, there's new resources available. And what's happened when you do that is pretty exciting because you'll have some social services that their job is to tackle transportation, but they live, they're housed five miles out of the radius. And this other group provides gas cards and they don't know how to connect people to get the gas cards given away. So we're solving two issues that two nonprofits are having uh, collectively in ways that they never would have saw themselves as partners before. If we can't find a community nonprofit to meet the immediate need, whether it's paying for a down payment to get into a, a rent house or um, fixing a car, uh, we have a lot of mechanics that will fix cars for our students for free. Um, but if we can't find one or it's too, it's too severe for any business to bear the burden alone, our foundation has created the No Excuses Fund, and we have a 24-hour turnaround once we identify a, an issue and we pay the person that's fixing the car or we're paying the utility company or we're paying the child care facility or we're paying the physician directly so that students can get their needs met and can stay in school. That culture of caring has had the impact that you would hope it would with an accelerated learning environment, predicting what students are gonna need before they're in crisis, and developing a complete systemic approach to social services, our completion rates have gone from 19% four years ago to 49% right now, and our goal is to be at 70% by 2020. The world that we live in, in higher education, is not sustainable in meeting the economic needs that our communities have by polishing systems that are not working. We have to be disruptive, we have to be courageous, and we have to think bold and reimagine the very fabric of what we built and be willing to sacrifice what may be working on a small scale to embrace something that can actually work in profound ways on a large scale.
You're not just a little bit inspiring. <laughs> this is why I spend time with these folks. Um, so I'm going to pose just one question uh, to the three of you, and then I'm going to open it up to discussion. Um, but I'm going to pick a hard question, because I think that there's, there's one challenge to doing this work that we don't always name. And I really learned about it the first time that I naively uh, called Jihang, who's sitting back there, and uh, said, you know, I want to send out a survey about homeless and hunger, you know, uh, homelessness and hunger to these community colleges. And we said we'd do this. And how come they're not all jumping up and down to do it? This was the first year. And one of the things that you explained to me Jihang was, you know, that this is a little bit politically challenging for some colleges. You know, that, that we, and, and I think we've come to understand this better over time, even watching the newest survey results that keep coming in that show this suspicion of higher education broadly, and then this suspicion of what colleges are doing, and then also this, this suspicion in a sense of this sector and this question about, you know, are you getting people ready for work? And, you know, I can understand this pressure to feel like, yeah, we have these great outcomes and we have these fabulous students. And to go and start talking about how some of our students sleep in their cars, you know, unless we have the resources there to, like, fix that problem and get with it, you know, this can be challenging. The three of you are, 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 are not in Massachusetts. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that the folks in Massachusetts have it super easy. But you're not in Massachusetts. You're in Texas. And so I imagine that each of you has navigated the, the political landscape as well of, of doing this work, and I'm betting that you've done it in somewhat different ways. So wondering if, if each of you or if all, you know, any of you want to tackle that one. Sure. I, I, one, and, and thanks, because that, that's a question I find when, when I talk about this, it's on people's mind, uh, particularly if I rope in, which we do have a, a, a promise program, which provides a, a free pathway to college. Uh, right now, we're in 43 high schools. We're, we're adding 12 a year, which free means free. And a lot of people see that as a politically charged word uh, that uh, we're giving it away. And, and I, I think there are a lot of, of though explanations that, that tend to work pretty well. And uh, when, when we're out talking about this, we really are talking about the future of the workforce, uh, the, the needs of our community. And if I just might frame where, where I usually start with this conversation, I said, look, we have, we believe, four responsibilities as the Dallas County Community College District, and each of our seven colleges uh, play a role in this. And that our first responsibility is that we were really created by the founders, and I've talked to them uh, about this when they were uh, alive, and and to help uh, really help our community to be successful. And by that, they meant economically successful, mm -hmm. that there was opportunity for people to live and raise their family uh, in, in those communities, uh, and that it would be a place where people would want to stay and, and live. Secondly, is to help our businesses to prosper. And we believe that if we aren't growing our businesses, we aren't creating jobs and opportunities within the community. And if we can do those two things first, now we can start to inspire. Uh, and, and that's a little harder than you think, uh, uh, inspiring individuals to come and take advantage of, of the opportunity because if you've been told all your life, you don't, uh, my family doesn't have the money to, to do this or there's not the opportunity that's there, you, that's for other people, not you. Uh, it, it gets in the way. And so a lot of that is how do we change the minds? And, and frankly, how do we change our minds as institutions uh, uh, along the way? You know, when 
the Dallas County Community College District was created in 1965 when it opened the doors. Only about 25% of the population needed a post-secondary credential of any type. Well, unfortunately, we still have the mindset at far too many colleges that that we uh, and and we are not aligning our programs with the uh, with the economy and the needs of the workforce, and therefore we are robbing people of those opportunities for which they could be inspired to take advantage of going forward. And finally, it really is about improving the quality of life for everyone, and it is a quality of life issue when you're hungry. Uh, when you worry where uh, uh, you're, you're going to sleep at night, uh, when you have health issues and you know that uh, you, you can't afford to, to, uh, to, to deal with those. Uh, just, just a comment on that as we, as we look at it. So I find when we talk about it in this way and we frame it as an economic reality, I mean, uh, uh, and I will go back, there's only two ways to increase the GDP, increase the size of the workforce or the productivity. This is a human capital issue. And, uh, and, and we find that, that usually business leaders, chambers, others really can resonate with, with, with that. At, at Amarillo, um, we, we're a, a really conservative community. I think over 80% of people voted for President Trump in the last election. So we wouldn't be a candidate um, for a community that would embrace a free college movement, which we have embraced. We wouldn't be a candidate for a, a community that has um, a robust infrastructure to eradicate poverty, but we are, and here's why. It is always an economic issue. Uh, Edward Glazer is an economist who wrote a book called Triumph of the City, and I lead with his words in every community presentation I give. He can predict which cities are gonna succeed and fail over the next 20 years based on one number, the education attainment in your community. In my community, education attainment is less than 30%. And if you look at his theory, we are projected to lose population. And the only sector growth we might have is in low-skill manual labor. Those are important jobs. We need more of those jobs. But they can't be the foundation of your economic message in your community. The only foundation, and I make it a really selfish argument, if you don't if you're not engaging in this work for social justice, fine, do it selfishly. In my community, the neighbors that live next to me, the nice houses, if they want our community to be a community that their kids would raise their children in and their children would stay and work here, we've got to educate everyone. Otherwise, our property values are gonna plummet and our taxes are going to increase because there's gonna be fewer people with the means uh, to pay the bill that's going to come. Education is the conduit for solving our long-term economic message. He says for every 10% you increase education attainment in your community, you get a 22% increase in GDP, which is salaries. You want to grow your salary? Make sure my Maria gets a degree. You want to make sure she gets a degree? Make sure she and your kids have food and a way to get to school. You want to solve your economic problem, make sure you're meeting Maria's. It's very similar, I think, in all the regions of our state. Um, you know, I'm third generation Texan on one side of my family, fourth generation on the other. Um, I'm, my whole life has been on the border, Brownsville, McAllen, now El Paso. Um, and what we see is, you know, the state of Texas has our, our higher education plan. Uh, the first plan that I was a part of, actually, this is probably the third one in Texas. The, the first one I was a part of was called Closing the Gaps. 
And that's what we all knew it as. But the full title was Closing the Gaps, A Tale of Two States and a Million More Jobs. And Ray Perryman, who's a world-renowned economist from Waco, Texas, of all places, Ray Perryman said that if we were able to close the educational attainment level gaps in our state, that on average back in 2000, it would have been $60 billion of additional annual revenue for our state. Our new plan that started in 2015 is 60 by 30 Texas. 60% of our 25 to 34-year-olds will have a market-valued credential, degree or certificate, by the year 2030. My oldest son will be 25 in 2030. This is very personal. You can't get to that educational attainment level. You cannot increase your educational attainment level if you're dealing with issues of need, basic needs. We all go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How can you move forward with this particular area? And I will tell you that we're way behind in the state of Texas. And we're not going to be able to recruit talent from your states to keep coming into our state. That will end. And here's what, here's what we're, the challenge that we're looking at. This past spring, I saw an article in Inside Higher Ed that said uh, it, it, was, it was in April that this coming May, all these high school graduates and 70% of them would go to college. Now, of course, the byline was that 20% would never make it. But in our state, and by the way, we produce 11% of all high school graduates in the nation. There's 3.1 million high school graduates. We produce about 335,000 and growing annually. Only 52% of those students go to college, any college. And so when you pull us out of the national average, and I'm the data nerd, so I've done that, the national average goes up to 72.2%. We're over 20% behind the rest of the nation. And I don't believe in average. We have, to, we have to increase the educational attainment level, as Russell was indicating. And if we don't get these students into college and help them facilitate their success once they're in, then the economic well-being of our regions, our state, and the nation as a whole will pay the price. And so we have to make sure, no, no, no pun intended on, on your book, yes, uh, we'll have to pay the price uh, of not being able to do this. So there's an economic incentive for all of us to do this work. Now, all of you believe in this work because you're worth colleges. You're either trustees or presidents. We believe in this work. We have to help our communities and the self-interest of that economic well-being. Someday I'd like to retire. I'd like to hope there's a small check in Social Security for me at some time. And if we don't build up this educational attainment level, we will never get there. Okay, so with that, I want to open it up to comments, questions, ideas. I think that this microphone, I have a feeling that that microphone is intended uh, for, for our audience members to ask questions. So if you come up to the microphone and you can queue up if you want to. Uh, when you start, would you do me a favor and please say who you are and what college you're from? Appreciate it. Um, my name is Margaret Dunkel. I'm from the College of Southern Maryland. And in an earlier uh, incarnation, I worked a lot with similar issues for children and families who were through uh, secondary school. So first I want to say thanks to what you're doing for in a challenging political climate especially to try to make what is admittedly on its best day, a very dysfunctional system be more functional for your most at-need students. That is a, a heroic effort, and I, I totally compliment you for, uh, for what you're doing there. It's a very hard task. And I have three kind of questions, kind of questions, half comments. One is, could you speak some to gender differences 
Um, in our college, 64% of the students are female. Uh, I think ACCT generally is in the high 50s. So speak to some of the gender differences as you talk about children and those kinds of issues and health issues for children. The, the second issue is around navigation and systems navigation. I mean, 20 years ago, I worked on stuff like that with uh, during the Clinton administration, the Partnerships for Stronger Families and Reinventing Government, and there were uh, computer systems that were then getting started to take federal benefit programs and their convoluted and constantly changing eligibility criteria, uh, but to plug in a specific person's information and then come out with... Um, what they might be eligible for from multiple public programs, and you could add private programs as well that were locally. I'm wondering how you're drawing on that kind of research that was done and how you might in your own, on your own campus uh, use your computer facilities to take some of that uh, uh, eligibility, determination, technology, and plug it into your, uh, your own st students. I mean, for example, uh, uh, if you have dual enrollment students, are they eligible for free and reduced price lunch? And actually, you know, another issue of that is why don't we think about having free and reduced price lunch go past the 12th grade? You know, I mean, that would be another thing, but the agriculture committees might have something say to say yes. about that. But it's really worth thinking about or uh, eligibility for food stamps or SNAP uh, the, uh, and how that would affect. Now, the, that, that's the kind of second thing, the navigation thing. And the third thing is with higher ed reauthorization coming up, have you thought about changes in the higher ed formula of determining uh, income and expenses. I mean, in the 80s, we actually got the student aid formula changed so that AFDC didn't count towards uh, student aid and student aid didn't count towards AFDC, and then they undid that when it came to, uh, when they enacted TANF. But ways to change the student aid formula so that you can increase eligibility for high-need students whether it's food or transportation or whatever, through um, how you determine student aid and what counts as income and assets. So it's three easy questions. Uh, really simple questions. Yeah. Can I do a quick overarching statement? Sure. And then and I'm going to hand it to all three of you. So um, first, in the national data, we don't see huge differences by gender in rates of dealing with these challenges but we think that it would be higher for women if not for the fact that some programs are actually easier to access for people with children, right? So certainly things like getting SNAP benefits, food stamps, you're subject to a work requirement in most, most places, um, and college doesn't count for that work requirement, but if you, don't, if you do have children, um, then you don't have to meet that work requirement. So we have a feeling that without that safety net, we'd probably be seeing um, more gender differences. On the second issue, I wanna make sure that you all know, I think these sessions 
already happened, but there was a session here at ACCT about benefits access for college completion. There's very important work being done by CLASP and others around those issues. And I also know that Single Stop has been here, um, and Single Stop does a lot with technology and benefits access. Related to that and related to the third question is that there have been very important discussions at the federal level about the integration of financial aid and other public benefit systems and reasonable questions have been raised about why we can't take a Pell eligible student and very quickly alert them that they could be eligible, if not evaluate them for eligibility for other programs. I know we have at least one uh, significant policymaker here in the room who works on these issues. I know that others have tried in the past. We had a lot of discussions about this under President Obama. I have not seen those same discussions occur under the, this administration, but there is always hope and uh, an election coming up. So if those are things that you support and you wanna see happening, I encourage you in that direction. Um, so I'll begin with the question with regards to males. Uh, uh, Sarah's absolutely correct. What we're seeing is the food insecurity, the, the, the basic needs aren't different. The issue that I'm seeing, which is even before that, is the matriculation rates and success rates of males versus females. And, and this was my dissertation. This is what I studied. I looked at, at uh, Latino males in higher education or really the lack thereof. And so what we see is exactly what you're referring to is at my institution, we're 57-43. So, and, and I've seen institutions as bad as 62-38. I think you said 64-36. This is a real issue, and it's one that is going to continue to rise if we don't address it head on. When you, so the lines crossed in about 1992-93, and the gap just keeps getting better. And let me preface this by saying it is not a zero-sum game. We will continue to do all of the initiatives and efforts that we've done to get young ladies, in particular in my institution, young ladies of color, into STEM fields, into higher education. They are doing it. They're, 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 right now, Latinas in the state of Texas are outperforming white men which is a, a unique situation that is moving forward, and it's the fastest growing population. We need to ensure that we continue to address that. But our young men of color in the state of Texas, right now we track what we call the number in the state of Texas. It's eighth grade cohorts that we track 11 years later, and we see what their educational attainment level is. When we disaggregate the data and look at young African-American males are at 10%, of them, 11 years after eighth grade, receiving a credential, Latino males are at 12%. So we have much work to do, and that begins all the way from elementary school and creating that college-going culture and ensuring that they understand that. But the needs and the poverty that we're seeing, again, 60% of the K through 12 students in the state of Texas are on free and reduced lunch. In my region, it's 74%. In Chancellor May's region, he said 82% of his high schools that are in his areas are in that situation. You're seeing these young men skipping higher ed because they have to go to work to contribute to the family, um, to their immediate family, if they already have children or if they're planning a family. The issue is they don't understand that you're, they're delaying that is investing in themselves, but it's very difficult when the basic needs are not met. Your second question, I think there, there are uh, several technological um, software packages that will allow a student to complete, um, put all of their information in and it will populate all the applications that they're eligible for. Um, at Amarillo, in this, the community of Amarillo, we used a benefit bank until it was purchased for a for-profit company and then it became um, less affordable. 
but what we learned from that process is, and what we learn every day, is that the government and the college are full of bureaucracies, but when you know people and you have relationships with the people over those bureaucracies, the biggest thing that we do now is we pick up the phone. So if we have someone that's not applied for SNAP or CHIP or we pick up the phone and we say, we got this student, do you have resources? Yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm sitting with them and I'm gonna have them complete the application and fax it over to you or email it to you. We're, where we, what we would have done before the culture of caring is we would have told Maria, figure out a way to get 10 miles over here where the office is, and then the other office you need to go to is 12 miles over here, and, and wished her luck. Now we, we can't allow those barriers to get in the way of helping her, and so we're, we're making the phone calls, we're using uh, the transportation means in our community to get students to places that they have to be to apply for those, but most of them we're doing with data sharing agreements between the college and the agencies that avoid that. Yeah, let me let me pick up, and I I want to want to really talk about the navigation piece and what I think you can do as as leaders in your uh, within your community. And there are a couple of things that we do right now that we we work very closely with the United Way agencies, uh, and particularly 38 that we regularly bring together uh, annually. We convene, uh, we share what's happening with with our students, and we we work to uh, to, to really coordinate that. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, Aunt Bertha, but we also that's or passive uh, that we're we're partnered with a, a tech company called Pieces Tech, and we've just built uh, our. our had ourselves built into a platform that right now provides case management for 400 uh, services uh, entities within the Dallas uh, area so that we can get a direct uh, connection to that. We're just piloting that at, at, at this point in time. So there, there are things to do, but I kind of wanted to hit the federal level uh, a bit because, and, and, uh, and one, I really appreciate the support that I think is turned to support many of the students that we need. And, and, and uh, getting year-round was no small feat uh, and uh, and one that that is already making a huge difference I mean we've seen uh, students getting dollars go up a double triple now in, in just the uh, just this the first year and it's hard to fathom how we allowed that to exist as such a barrier uh, that absolutely kept people from earning their 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 education so appreciate the work of, of everyone on that one the next one has to be short-term Pell the 600 hours a length of a program what we're doing uh, is many of the people that we're bringing up uh, particularly those coming out of impoverished backgrounds we need to get them into a job quickly uh, and and uh, and help support that so anything though right now less than a year in length guess what we pay we fund it for everybody else through Pell but you have to pay for it yourself out, out of your your own pocket so uh, every uh, every almost every plumber every pipe fitter uh, any of these individuals coming through have had to find the resources to pay for their education and, and to make that happen and it's a it's a drag on the economy uh, right now we in Dallas uh, we are 6,000 licensed plumbers short of just what the needs are in, in, in that, that, that community uh, that's there. 
So the, uh, you know, we've really uh, done a disservice to our communities, to students and, and individuals, and it seems like there's uh, increasing bipartisan support to, to, uh, to, to look at that. But those are going to be important ones, I think, as we look forward with, uh, with AGA. And, and, and frankly, we do need to uh, really standardize the, the, the calculation for uh, what uh, the, the family uh, support. Uh, contribution that, that, that's in there. Uh, if you've ever looked at that data, look at it just from your own state and look at institutions with similar tuition, similar economies, you will find that they can vary by 100%. Yeah, and the call for a national school lunch program expansion is something that we've been talking about for a while. We've made a proposal from the Hope Center to do that. Um, we'd like to see it picked up. We'd really like to see it piloted in a couple of states, frankly. We do think there are wins, especially on the part of agriculture, for that effort. Um, and that there should be multiple interests uh, that would come together. We would hope that some of the barriers and challenges that face the K-12 program, um, for example, I'm in Philadelphia where we have a community-level program, and my children, um, you know, qualify for it the same as, you know, somebody who doesn't have a mom for a professor. But what they do report back, which is helpful to know, is that, unfortunately, the pizza that they're served is not fully defrosted. We don't have cooking facilities in our schools. We don't have anything even approaching kitchens. But what's interesting is that some of those challenges that have affected the K-12 space might not be quite the same. A lot of our colleges do have those facilities and spaces. So it, it seems like this would be a, a, a very interesting area for discussion. And again, as Joe said, you know, they graduate from high school on free and reduced price lunch. It's not like that need disappears. And they, I can tell you from talking to them, are pretty staggered that anybody thinks it's a good idea to take away that lunch and expect them to still be awake in class. Uh, let me tell you, the verification process is horrendous and is keeping individuals out of, out of college. Uh, I, we, we have 39% right now of uh, our individuals that file for Pell are flagged for verification. And, and fortunately, we have resources to support and to help them through that process, but too many places in the country, they're told, come back when you get this resolved. And, uh, and, and most of them, unfortunately, when, when given that advice and direction, they, they don't get it resolved, so. Completely agree. Yeah, go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Marcellus Kirkland. I'm the student trustee from Prince George's Community College in Prince George's County, Maryland. And so my question was, or first let me say that, uh, often what I see on our campus is that there are students, both uh, traditional students and non-traditional, who often do need uh, the resources that we do have and that we do provide. But as you alluded to, some of them, whether it be because of pride or because of any other uh, factor, they're not always comfortable with seeking those resources. And so I was wondering how you all go about providing those resources in a way that ensure that, you know, students are willing and, you know, to, to receive those and break those barriers, whether, whatever they may be. This is such a good question. Thank you, and I'm so glad that a student joined us uh, this afternoon. Yes. This question about stigma in particular is its definitely a barrier. You all want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I'll be very brief so that my colleagues can jump in. We, we've changed the, the language and the semantics of what we talk about. We don't, you know, um, our students, when they pay their tuition and fees, whether on, on financial aid or not, what we say is, okay, you're not asking for help. You're ensuring that you get the most out of your tuition and fees. You paid for all of this. Take advantage of what you paid for. I just want to take a second to remind you that registration is now open for the National Legislative Summit. 
The summit will take place in Washington, D.C. from February 10th through the 13th and is a great opportunity to advocate for your institution and hear from members of U.S. Congress, leading political analysts, and other high-profile speakers about the current climate in D.C., recent elections, and legislative issues impacting community colleges. Head over to nls.acct.org to register. So at Amarillo College, we talk about, I say this all the time, we're going to love the student we have, not the student we wished we had or thought we had. Love the student we have. And that means talking about her and, and not just talking about her to faculty and staff, but to the other students to normalize uh, the student experience. Because what we've learned is that most of the time, the students that are facing issues of food and housing insecurity think they're the only ones facing it. Uh, so we have to remove that stigma. We do that by talking about it in our, all of our orientations, in our um, first-year seminar class. It is in, a, um, it, it's in a, a letter that they get before classes start. Um, but one of the most important things we did, and it wasn't without controversy, is that we took all of our social services that were on the outskirts of the campus and we put them in the most visible building on campus in the first floor heart of that building in an all-glass enclosure. And the fear was that students wouldn't use it because they would feel ashamed of it. And what happened was the exact opposite. By putting it in the center, by highlighting it, by talking about it all the time, we normalized it when we were uh, ignoring it. They felt like we were honoring them by saying this is a normal part of the experience for Amarillo College students to get some help. You get free tutoring, you get help here, you get help here. The successful Amarillo College student takes help. That's the message that we share from the very beginning. Successful students get help. That help comes in many different forms, but we've normalized that help rather than uh, shaming it. Yeah, and and couldn't agree more. I, you know, just just a story related to it. So, we 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 made a, a decision to to bring in the North Texas Food Bank into our colleges. So we uh, we went with one particular college first. We brought the mobile pantry out. Uh, we made it known that it was there, but. Quite honestly, I had pushback from the uh, the president and the leadership of of the college for even doing it uh, because of the question that you asked, and uh, and actually ended up having us uh, at his request put it behind the the institution in a non visible spot for for that first day, and I set out and gave away uh, handed out about uh, a thousand pounds of food that that day to folks. I have never been hugged more seen more tears, more gratitude. I didn't see, I don't see that at commencement. Uh, and, uh, and, and the, 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 the fact that it was recognized that they had a need that was being understood and offered a solution to that need is powerful to me. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we, obviously we changed our philosophy very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and made sure that they're accessible, visible, usable, and that it's uh, understood it's really there to, to address. So one of the things that we've tried to do in, in building out our, our service spaces is to make it honoring of our students. The space is beautiful. When they're, when they're shopping for food and clothing, it's like 
it feels like a shop. I mean, we are intentional that students can look like they're shopping for clothes or they look like they're shopping in a grocery store. We, this isn't about shaming people. Most of our students wear that shame every day. It's about removing that shame through intentional love. And it happens every day. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is the, the initial fear was, oh, people take, take, take. One, we're overly worried about people getting something they don't deserve when we're talking about such minute amount of support. But what we've been overwhelmed by is when students come in and they, they'll find clothes for that professional interview or they'll find scrubs for their first job or they'll buy, they'll, they'll buy uh, food in our food pantry. How many of our students come back with the food they didn't use or they replenish what they used or they're giving back once they get their job? These students, stu you, you know, I mean, students are grateful for the support we give. They're not mooch moochers. They're just needing support so they can get to the next better phase of their life, and we've got to provide it more freely. But I think this is also an evolving area, and I want to say that one of the most important things students need to be working on is helping the colleges know the best ways to communicate these things. This is an area where I think the fact that our colleges have been so under-resourced and don't have the time to spend on with comms and marketing professionals who, who are good at connecting with folks. And I've seen some great messaging, and I've seen some messaging where I thought, look, if you put up a sign that says, this is homeless student services, people don't even call themselves homeless. People who live in their cars don't call themselves that, right? So you want to ask, you know, do you have a challenge, you know, finding a safe and affordable place to live, right? When's the last time you ate? And I always say when I'm talking to the students that you're not asking for a handout here. You're asking for the tools you need to get your degree. And sometimes going on food stamps is the same as applying and doing your FAFSA to get your Pell Grant to help you get to your degree. But we are in a culture and a place right now where very few of them can feel really safe doing that. And we're going to have to do the kinds of things that these guys just described and that students are coming up with to change it. So I'm glad you're in that. Well, I thank you, and I thank you all for taking that extra step and caring about your students. Absolutely. Do we have, we have time, I think, for one final question or comment if we have someone? My name is Nicole Schoening. Um, I am a trustee from Central Wyoming College in Riverton, Wyoming. We are adjacent to the Wind River Indian Reservation. Our community is very small, and our student population is approximately 1,900 students. Um, I also, my day job, <laughs> I'm a school social worker in our um, immediate, one of our intermediate schools in, in our community. Um, so... I am acutely aware that we have become a data-driven society in our schools, and we, in an elementary setting, really struggle with, you know, Maslow and meeting basic human needs, but also wanting to see the data that our students are achieving at high levels. And so I was just curious if you've got any data to support what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to say so, actually. You know, I've been hearing folks, I've, I've been getting a little bit of, of, I appreciate it when we get kind of through the rumor mill, the pushback, right? And somebody said lately, well, there's a lot of talk about meeting these needs, and it sounds good to meet these needs, but does it actually increase student achievement? Well, the first thing is, 
there's multiple types of data, right? I mean, and I, I want to acknowledge that. So when we have students telling us that the fact that I got to eat this morning is the reason I'm awake this afternoon, that matters, okay? And when we've got college presidents telling us we're seeing it on the ground, we see the changes in our students, that matters, okay? But we want to see it in these administrative records, right? I want to look at college transcripts and note the changes. So what I can tell you is this. First, we have measured how students do and we can correlate it with their food and housing insecurity in multiple ways. And every study that we've ever run or that our colleagues have run, and this is a growing research area, we can see a very clear and strong negative relationship between housing insecurity and food insecurity and students' outcomes of all the kinds you care about. Whether students show up for class, whether they um, finish the credits they start, whether they get good grades, whether they persist. That, that correlation is strong. And when we do statistical modeling and try to make apples and apples, the relationships are still there. That said, the coolest area of work, in my opinion, and the part that really is going to matter, is that we're currently testing the interventions in randomized control trials so that we can really see, for example, what happens when we give out meal vouchers at Bunker Hill Community College. Do students stay in school longer, right? Do they, in fact, graduate at higher rates? We're asking the same question of food scholarships in Houston, Texas. We're even asking that question of Section 8 housing vouchers in Tacoma, Washington. You know, these are very difficult things. Community colleges are not usually really hospitable, frankly, for randomized control trials. Um, for good reason, frankly, you should be skeptical of them, but we also understand this reality. We need to see that dial moved, and we're hoping that more folks will open themselves up to that kind of work, because the day that we can show you a chart, which is, it, that day is coming really soon, that we can show you a chart. This is your outcome of graduation if they're housed, and this is the one if they're not. And that you have a role to play in actually ensuring that they're housed, I think that's a really big moment. But for the record, there was never a randomized control trial to show us that we needed the National School Lunch Program. Okay? Nobody's ever shown in that manner that it helps students when they eat lunch. But there are very few people in this country, I think, who would support a movement to not feed our students. And so it's interesting, to say the least, the role that data and evidence are having to play at this moment to bringing those supports to the other humans who are trying to go to school. This is, I could get millions of dollars to create a tech product, product that would nudge your students and remind them every day to study, right, or remind them to do their FAFSA. But get, try getting a couple hundred thousand bucks to make sure that students get food or housing. It's not a priority. And I think that that really helps us underline and reflect why we don't have more at this moment. I just want to compliment all of you and thank you for this conversation today because as a social worker and as a trustee, you know, this is a subject that's just near and dear to my heart. And um, it's a conversation that I have on a daily basis in my building. And so I appreciate your willingness to, to share all of your knowledge with us and compliment all of you on what you're currently doing. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you for the work that you're thank doing. Thank you. All the thank way in you. Wyoming, too. That's wonderful. All right. I know we're out of time, and I, I want to emphasize the thanks and appreciate you being here. And if you want to follow up with any of us, I know that we're all folks who like to hear from people and answer questions later as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Season 2 of In the Know with ACCT. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified when we release the next episode. We'll see you next week.